Hello, good morning. You're very welcome to the program. Between now and nine, the days of thumping fists are over. New farm organisation president sets out his stall. And the incredible amount of work that goes into farming the perfect Irish Christmas tree. It is a dark one out there, people. Barely a whisper of light here now at a quarter past eight in the morning. But the good news is the stretch in the evening, apparently I was reading, began on Wednesday. The bad news is the mornings are still going to be getting darker for another fortnight. But we start getting our evenings back from here on in. We are going to begin this morning with a question that has vexed a few of you in the last 10 days enough to write to us asking, why is it that supermarkets are able to sell Irish Christmas trees for €25 or even less, but everyone else can be looking for 70 or even €80 for the Irish tree. Are supermarkets selling them as a loss leader or might others be taking advantage of our Christmas good cheer? Well, I set myself the task of finding out what it is that is involved in producing a Christmas tree and what, all being fair and equal, should it cost? Up in the hills above Cool Greeny on the Wicklow-Wexford border, harvesting will continue until Tuesday on Peter Porter's plantation. 30 hectares of Nordman firs at various stages of maturity. When you're going at full tilt, how many trees would you take down in an hour? <laughs> Sometimes you could, it depends on the sort of farm you're in. <laughs> Very anywhere from 70 to 100 trees in the air. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of work. So I'd say there's a lot of ibuprofen goes into keeping <laughs> your back in shape as well. Oh, yeah, yeah there's a lot of, you're, you're, uh, you're conditioned, you're conditioned into it. Like, I mean, you, you have to be so. I was guilty of assuming that all that the Christmas tree business involved was planting, walking away and cutting down seven years later. But standing in front of a pretty ragged-looking specimen still in the ground, Peter told me what it was going to take to make that into a tree that could be bought for €70 Euro next year. Like that now, it's not won't be sold this year. So we'll come in and we do shaping on that tree. So we balance the tree. We'll balance that where the gap is there. We'll, we'll do infill and do balance and shape. What, what's infill? Infill is putting the two boughs together like this and just tying them together and holding them in position so they will grow in that position for the following year okay. and that will fill the gap for the following year. Right. So it's not just about lopping branches off, it's actually about controlling the direction that the boughs yeah, are moving. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's all got to do, we do all the, this infill and all that as well, like I mean we do the bud picking, we do everything to make the tree, try and make the best tree that we can for the Irish customer, like, I mean... And the bud picking is to what? To stop new growth in a direction you don't want? Yeah, there's bud picking there that was done in that there. And there's a smaller tree that hasn't been done, so the buds that would grow out longer. So the wood, so that's what happens, like, I mean, so ones that hasn't been done would grow out longer than what it shouldn't. So you want buds growing at the bottom yeah, so you yeah, get yeah. a good wide base, yeah, yeah, but yeah. narrower at the yeah, top. Yeah, narrower at the top, like, you know. That's so, you, the, so you take the buds off Yeah, we the take top. the buds at the top, always at the top of the world, every time. Oh, my God. So you're doing that for each and every single one of the, these trees in this plantation? Yeah. This is How the many one. trees here? 
there's uh, nearly 70,000. And this is one plantation of this how many? Oh, five. Oh, good Lord, Peter, I see. This is... This is, this is intense This is work. the work of 12 months. This is the work of 12 months, yeah. This is what... This is, people don't understand. People think that the Christmas tree is just planted in the ground and you come back in eight years' time and you harvest it and it's good and it's great and everything else. Now, it's got to the situation with the, the amount of plastic trees that is there and the, the look of them. That They look so real. They have the smell of the... Yeah, they have everything... Yeah. But they're plastic. We have the real thing, so we have... But you're competing with something that is so symmetrical, so uniform, so perfectly shaped and coloured that people are expecting really a very, very finely crafted, shaped product. They want exactly what they see in the catalogue. Mm. And that's it. They want the, or they want the Christmas tree looking like the artificial. And we are doing that. I know, I know, I know. He's growing the real thing to a standard set by the artificial product, which is modelled on the real thing. It would make your head hurt. People always um, will want a Christmas tree. So I don't want to think it's really... like I think that... Um, but people, but, but people will also be driven by price, Peter. And if they see €60 Euro versus €25, Euro, they're going to go for the €25 Euro tree, aren't they? Not necessarily, no. That doesn't work always that way. Like, but they, like I mean, it doesn't always work that way. Like, people look for... Um, it's, it's quality as well that they're looking for. They're not looking for the cheap fix all the time. Like, I mean, the people are... You know what I mean? And... That's what's happening. Like they, they are, they're selling at a loss. Like I don't understand it. Like why they they only want to get the people into the store. Peter supplies garden centres around the country with trees, but he also sells them himself in several pop-up stores. People that could walk in the gate and just say, "I'll have that one there straight in front of me." That would be a man, wouldn't it? That, that would most definitely be a man. <laughs> and then a couple could come in and they could be they could be in here for anything up to 45 minutes. Are you kidding me? No, really? absolutely not. Um, Stephen McGuinness helps Peter out with a bit of tuition in Christmas tree sales tactics for all of the seasonal employees. There is a lot of money trickling down into the local economy with this business. So on a busy Saturday and Sunday, which generally in the Christmas season is, you know, the second and third weekends in December, we would have young lads from the GAA clubs, big strong lads, to lift the trees on and off people's cars. Um, there could be up to ten. Really? Yeah. And then you replicate that on street corners, well, several in every town and in every town. Yeah, well, the like there are people selling trees on street corners, but um, in um, Porter's Christmas trees, it's all sort of established buildings. How many people are taking a job off this plantation then? There's roughly about, we had about 20 people altogether employed okay. this year. Like, you know is, I mean? is that 20 people during the harvesting season or the whole year round? No, it's 20 people during the harvesting season and then we bring in people as we need them then individually during the year like for different programmes that we're doing on the trees, like depends what we're doing. And it's trickling down right through from um, 
tractors hire to machinery hire down to lorries transport everything is it's a knock-on effect on everyone like i mean as so bottom line peter once you have taken a salary and you have added all of the other costs in from your chainsaw oil to your fertilizer to the forklift hire that i see down there how much are these trees being sold to the garden centers for and our prices start from 20 euro and our top price is 28 euro that's what we've been getting like for five to six foot trees, six to seven foot, seven to eight. These are a premium product though. There's nothing scraggly or misshapen about any of these. These are these are the perfect. We spend this is this is our life, so it is, and we spend a lot of time doing this and we have it down to a fine art. And the trees that you're looking at are the quality that people would deserve to get and of what they should be getting. The Vienna Boys Choir providing the perfect segue to our next guest this morning, the ever-rosy-cheeked and freshly scrubbed Dara McCullough from Ear to the Ground. Dara, good morning and happy Christmas. (laughs) Good morning. You don't want to hear me breaking into song at this hour of the morning now, Phil. No, we absolutely do not. We are very well aware, though, that you are a farmer who has tried his hand at just about everything that the Irish weather and soil will sustain, from onions to milk to daffodils. Uh So why not Christmas trees too? Yeah, that was the that was the the notion uh, that started uh, first germinated in my brain about eight years ago. So we did plant uh, a couple of thousand trees um, in twenty seventeen, and we've started harvesting them for the first time this year. Um, so uh, we've had a, a steady trickle of customers in um, into the farm here, um, and uh, delighted. You know, it's a different experience from going into, we'll say, a, a supermarket or somewhere else to pick up a tree that's in a net Mm -hmm. you can actually walk through a plantation and pick out your own tree so that's something different Um, I would imagine that Peter Porter is very much bigger than you by by comparison so he would have economies of scale that you don't is it costing Mm -hmm. you significantly more than 28 euro a tree? It is. I mean, it, the cheapest trees he's able to sell are, are 20 euros and I would struggle to produce a tree for 20 euros. And, uh, you know, it's it's just a, a case of scale. So like you know, when I go to plough an acre of ground to plant, you know, 1500 trees or whatever, um, there's a lot of messing around for the acre. Whereas Peter goes out there and he probably ploughs maybe 30 acres uh, and plants 30 or 40 acres of trees at a time. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, he's able to drive down the cost. That's the, the whole name of the game. And it doesn't matter whether you're growing Christmas trees or daffodils or onions or anything else. Let me play devil's advocate here. This product, the Christmas tree, it is, it is literally the most disposable investment that you're probably going to make this year because you're not going to see it after January the 6th. Why would I mm. spend, why wouldn't I want to spend the least amount of money possible on this and go straight to a supermarket and get it for 25 euro? Yeah, um, look, we're, uh, I can't go throwing too many stones in that glass house in that, you know, I'll shop in my local supermarket wherever I think I can get the best value. We're all human. Uh, we all look for a bit of value. But... Um, when I was looking at the trees in the supermarkets for 25 euros, 
I was just thinking to myself, Mother of God, it's the latest thing to suffer from the price wars that uh, the supermarkets love to engage in. And like there's nothing sure than at 25 euros, it is a loss leader because, of course, the supermarket has to take its distribution costs out of the equation and everything else. And you may say to me, well, so what? Um, the thing is, the, the supermarkets can say, look, we'll we'll advertise this tree at 25 euros. We'll buy the minimum number possible. We'll have a handful uh, available in each shop. They're sold out in no time. The customers who miss the 25 euro tree then turn around, come down the road to Darren McCullough or whoever to buy their Christmas tree. And they're kind of bent out of shape when they realize like the cheapest tree is nearly double that price or 40 euros in my case. And they might buy the tree, but they also feel like they've kind of been ripped off and look for an alternative the following year. So what, you may say? Well, wind the clock forward and Darren McCullough may be along with every other small grower finds that his enterprise, his Christmas tree enterprise is struggling and, uh, you know, stops growing. And that's why you end up at this kind of point. Like for me, the most shocking thing I learned in 2023 about farming is that there is only 60 commercial outdoor veg growers left in the whole country. The whole country, Philip. That's like about two growers per county. And, you know, farmers have been shouting about this for years. And you see the Christmas tree farmer situation as being directly analogous with what's happening to vegetable growers, yeah? Yeah, uh, because it's a price war. And uh, so it's a way, a, a loss leader, and it's a way, and it doesn't cost the supermarket a thought. You know, it's not going to add to their bottom line. It doesn't make them more profit. It doesn't, I, I would swear it doesn't br- even bring in extra punters, but what it does is it stops extra punters drifting down the road to their competition. So they have to engage in it. And honestly, I don't know what the answer to this is, right? Because, uh, you know, we've a new food regulator put in place. And honestly, I don't think that they're going to be able to change the fundamentals. Uh, You can't force people to, you know, pay more for a product uh, if they have a cheaper alternative available. You can't force supermarkets to, um, to, Mm. you know, jack up their prices. Um, You can remind the customer, though, of the very most fundamental difference between the two products. And that is that it struck me while talking to Peter Porter and looking at the network of part-time jobs for lads on dairy Mm -hmm. farms that have dried off at this time of year or university students who are looking to fund next term in college, that that Mm -hmm. form of Christmas tree farming is really very deeply embedded in the local economy. Yeah, like any farming, Philip. Like it doesn't matter whether it's Christmas trees or beef or sheep or anything else. Uh, farming is part of the fabric of rural Ireland. And it's a bit like I, I draw the analogy with social media, right? If there's no controls on so, social media, seems like the most innocuous thing ever, right? But if there's no controls on it, it ends up cannibalizing the social fabric that we depend on to hold society together. And, you know, farming is part of the, the fabric of rural Ireland. And if we're, we're going to just dismiss it and say, look, we don't really need it, we have cheaper alternatives, uh, we, we can do without it. I think we're going to wake up someday and go, oh my God, what are we after doing? And how do we get to this point? 
All right, Dara, or should I say Ebenezer McCullough, if you want to wind him up, folks, you know what to do this morning when you're going to buy a tree off him and what price to compare his trees to. Dara, thanks very much. Happy Christmas to you. Take care. Now, unto us that two new farm leaders have been born. We have a wise man to assess them after the break. Email countrywide at rte.ie. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Well, the stars lined up in the last few days over sheds in Kilkenny and Leash to witness the birth of two new farm leaders at more or less the same time. The IFA concluded its lengthy trial by election for a new president resulting in the election on Wednesday of Francie Gorman. Uh, sorry, it was on Tuesday, actually, wasn't it? Whereas Dennis Drennan got the walkover last Friday when he was elected head of the dairy organisation, the ICMSA. So what are we looking at here? A new generation with a new approach to the issues of the day or the king is dead, long live the king. Pat O'Toole from the Farmer's Journal joins me now. Um, With the exception, Pat, of the election for president of the country, there's probably no more gruelling election than that of the IFA presidency. Uh, Absolutely. 942 branches, every single branch its own election, even though the the system has changed, tradition dictates that um, the branch vote is coveted. uh, the uh, I suppose three phases to the campaign since the candidates emerged in the summer they hit every show every fair uh, in the country over the summer months then um, after the ploughing it went into the hustings <clears throat> there were 17 head-to-heads around the country between the two presidential candidates the two deputy presidential candidates and culminating in the debate we hosted online in the Farmers Journal and then we went into the voting, uh, 940 branches voted, but also this time there was a postal vote. So people received their ballot in the post. You could bring it to the branch vote there or you could post it back in an envelope provided. What sense did you get from the hustings and from watching it all that closely as to why these two men, Martin Stapleton and Francie Gorman, wanted the job? Um, it's an extraordinary thing. I, I suppose... In the broader context, there's a huge volunteer force within IFA. Um, there are 17 national committees with representatives from every county on each committee uh, across the sectors, such as sheep, uh, livestock, dairy, uh, but also across cross sectors, such as the Environment Committee, uh, the Farm Business Committee, uh, the Farm Family Committee. And uh, so... Um, there's a huge level of voluntary representation within IFA and people come in to do a small job and as happens in organisations like that, um, busy people get asked to do more and more and more and some people see the top prize as, as attainable at a certain point. I've known both Francie Gorman and Martin Stapleton for quite some time and I don't know at what point they decided they wanted to do it, but it's a huge commitment. Um, this time last year, it was on, I think, Stephen's day, Francie Gorman broke his leg and he had a couple of months to sit and contemplate what he wanted to do. Uh, and I think that was probably decisive in, in propelling him okay. into the race. Uh, in terms of uh, why anyone gets involved in a voluntary organisation anymore, it's a huge question because it does affect their farm. Like these people get up in the morning run around as quick as they can, leave instructions for whoever is being left in charge while they're away. And it's not a family member anymore. The big family unit uh, no longer exists. You're talking about um, most farmers are operating on their own with some hired in help. um, And that's usually casual and temporary. So 
they go away for the whole day to agitate on behalf of their fellow farmers. Will Francie Corman <laughs> be different to Tim Cullinan, his predecessor, do you think? Yes, um, I think he will. Um, Tim Cullinan is an extremely nice man um, and uh, uh, someone who uh, I, I think has... I, I would consider him a gentleman. But Francie Gorman is an extrovert. Tim is quite introverted. Francie is very outgoing. He's very good at working the room. If he's at an event, everyone sees him. Uh, I think that stood to him in the campaign. And it will be interesting to see how he brings that uh, personality, that boisterous personality to bear in, in his presidency. Um, he will also have the bounce, I suppose, of having a deputy president who will attract a lot of... Um, interest outside the farming community because Alice Doyle is the first woman to have been elected to either of the two national positions in the history of the IFA and uh, I think that that will add a, a new flavour to the the, the, the new uh, team at the top. The future of the nitrates derogation, very much dead. One of the big things that's going to be uh, on the agenda as he gets his feet under the desk. Some are planning on a future without it. What's Francie Gorman's plan? I think his plan is to oppose any further reductions. Um, he made that clear during the campaign and the broader environmental tightening uh, and regulatory tightening around farming is something that the IFA will be fighting on an issue by issue basis in, in the short term. But I think what they really need to do is to develop a broad plan. So the Environment Committee elected a new chairman, John Murphy from Cork on Thursday and him and his committee will be pivotal if the IFA are going to have a coherent plan because so far it's been piecemeal. They're opposing every single proposal that comes forward from government or from Brussels uh, on principle and uh, without some kind of a a counter plan uh, that is progressive and positive and Mm. reaches into the future, I think they're on a losing ticket. What is the feeling within the IFA about that? Is it smart politics to oppose everything on point of principle? Um, It's smart politics in an election year. So we've had a lot of that this year. Now the elections are over and it's a four-year term. It used to be a two-year term. So we now have a four-year term instead of two two two-year terms. So that means the Francie Gorman, Alice Doyle and all the other top table newly elected people don't have to electioneer no they don't and they can get down to some uh, some hard talk internally as well as externally about the realities of what um, the shape of farming is going to be and the level of support that farmers are going to get for the challenges they face now, the IFA uh, declined our and other invitations for its new man Francie Gorman to come on countrywide he's not going to be doing interviews they say until he takes office in January formally no such formalities for the ICMSA's man Dennis Drennan who invited me to his farm just outside Kilkenny to talk about what he hopes to do with the job in the next three years why did you go for the job? Why did I go for it? Um, I suppose it's something I'm passionate about. Um, I think the organisation is um, its a very bottoms-up organisation. Everybody's view is valued. There's no top-down approach to who's right and who's wrong. What do you hope to achieve, though, in your time there? I'd hope that the divide that's developing there between the general public and farming community can be bridged and that we can work together. We need to sit down and have a mature conversation. Dennis's farm is hemmed in by the River Nore on one side and some of the steepest prices per hectare for land on the other side, which has put an effective break on his business changing size. 
Uh, just farming, a very small family farm. My father bought the farm here back in the early 60s. Uh, was told he should be sent to a mental asylum because he paid £100 an acre for it back in 1960. <laughs> and he was told there was, there was no land ever worth that like. And the field in front of him, his home house at home, has just been sold for 30000 an acre. So things have changed a fair bit. I milk 60 cows. I have 60 acres here. I rent a small uh, couple of pieces of land. They're coming under threat at the moment. So it's a very volatile time. The reason the reason I ask that question is that I'm interested in who you think you're going to be representing in the ICMSA, the farmer with 60, 90 cows and the farmer with six or 700 cows. Who do you see yourself representing? Well, I suppose we represent the family farm model. Everybody has this vision that everybody has three or 400 cows, but the majority, the average number of cows on a farm in Ireland is probably somewhere around 90. There's over 80% less than 120 cows. So that's where the model is in, in Ireland at the most. The family farm model, okay, there are people that have gone and expanded greatly and have second platforms and third platforms, but they're a very small minority. And is there a home for them in the ICMSA? Absolutely. There's loads of farmers out there with three or 400 cows and their animal husbandry is equally as good as the farmer with 30 or 40 cows. I was curious about what kind of a negotiator Dennis thinks he is. Protest first and talk second, or make sure you're always in the room and talking. I mean, I think the day of protest and and jumping up and down and banging tables is over. We need to go in and have a rational, honest discussion about where things are and where things are going and the the knock-on effects of different decisions. Are you telling me that you see yourself always being inside the room rather than outside the room protesting on a point of principle? You don't gain a huge amount by being outside in the freezing cold in the rain protesting. Uh, if you're inside, you can negotiate, but people have to accept the science. Like The farmers have been used as a scapegoat in all these things, like let's get rid of cows and let's everybody continue to drive around in their cars willy-nilly, going to, the, going to the shop two or three times a day and going here and going there, and let's continue to go on our stag parties all over Europe and fly on five holidays a year. Do you not see you're doing the classic... Don't look at us, look no, at them no, over no. there. No, no, I think farmers, if you look at what the changes that farmers have implemented in the last probably five to ten years when this has started to become a problem, every new technology that's been made available to farmers has been embraced. Does embracing the science, does deciding that you want to be led by the science mean that the ICMSA is going to invest in backroom PhD level knowledge that you're going to put people on the payroll, environmental scientists on the payroll. Yep. At the moment we're, we're in the process of recruiting environmental scientists to, to, to ex- examine this because that's where it's gone. I mean, look, at we're being, I th- we're being over-targeted and I think if, if the public don't accept that farmers are doing everything they possibly can to do their part, but everybody else needs to do their part as well. Milking had finished by the time I arrived at half eight in the morning, so as Dennis gave me a whistle-stop tour of the farm, I threw a few speed-dating-type questions at him. One-word answers, please. Favourite breed of cow? Friesian, British Friesian. Favourite job on the farm? Milking, most peaceful place to be. Whistle while you work or Spotify? Radio, if possible. Keep in touch with what's going on in the world. That's the right answer. Well done. It was a trick question, wasn't it? Um, Favourite saying? Uh, Let there be no panic. Favourite tractor? Massey. That's very old school. Massey Ferguson, yeah, I grew up with it. I'm not into the sexy John Deere's, but uh, I can't afford them anyway, so the Massey is going to have to do. (laughs) 
His Massey Ferguson sucking diesel redirects the conversation once again to bringing farming in line with Ireland's climate targets. If Dennis Drennan is going to be led by the science as he says he wants to be, this will be a very tricky needle for him to thread in the next three years. If you're a farmer and you're doing everything you possibly can and you're still being told by certain sections of the community that you have to do more and you have to call your herd and you have to do this, do they realise we have to live? If you're not economically viable, you can't be environmentally sustainable. The difficult balancing act for you, though, is that the science says we need all, not just the farming community, we need, all of us need to move an awful lot faster. And if you don't, you run the risk of losing your social licence On the other hand, so much is being asked of farmers, they feel that not enough credit is being given, that they're in a place where they're just about to sort of throw their hands up and walk away from it. How do you provide leadership in that situation? What the general public have to accept is that there was a target set for the farming sector for 19% reduction in emissions. When that target was moved from 19% to 25%, farmers are, are doing everything they possibly can to reach those targets. No other sector has done that. A lot of farmers are doing all that they can, but then the public look at some farmers who are not as engaged as they might be, and they think that that is representative. What do you say to those guys who aren't doing all that they should? There's just going to be have to be. It's just going to have to be enforced on those people that, that, that they, they have to come on the journey with us all. Now we do need incentives. There is, there, as I said, like we've been driven in a certain direction for 60 years. Um, we need to turn the ship, we need to change it. Every other sector has been incentivised. If you want to put solar panels on your roof of your house, there's, there's incentives for that. If you want to get an electric car, there's incentives. And if the government are serious about uh, wanting farmers to do their, their part, they need to incentivise farmers the same as they incentivise every other sector. One of the big issues that's going to be facing you now in the first year or two is the future of the derogation. The way the Taoiseach is talking in the last couple of weeks, it looks like somebody has told him, or at least he's thinking about planning for a future without that derogation. What are you going to do about that? Well, I think, like I said again, like we need to follow the science on that one. Like, I mean, the, 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 the measures are being implemented at farm level, but the experts in, in Chagas and Agricultural Catsmers Programme will show that there's a lag period between the implementing, implementation of a measure and results being seen. Are you saying that hopefully by 2025 some of the results will have come through? Well, I think they're already coming through. Like We're not being given time. I mean, you know, there's, there's a raft, the amount of new measures that have come in in the last two or three years. Um, you know, they're going to take time to work. Uh, we believe they will work. Um, but, I mean, we also need to look at, like, everybody's focused on destocking cow numbers, like, but, and they say it's under the measure of water quality, but when Chagas do the modelling, they say the effect of destocking cows from, from gra- grassland is, is a minimal effect on water quality. There, there may be better measures that, that will have, deliver better results than getting rid of the cows. Congratulations again, good luck with the job. Thank you very much. Dennis Drennan at home in Kilkenny there. Still with me, Pat O'Toole of the Farmer's Journal. Dennis Drennan's a man who has appeared at his predecessor, Pat McCormick's side uh, for quite a long time now. Is he the continuity Pat McCormick candidate? More of the same? I, I don't think so. He's a very different approach. Um, it, I'm actually going down to interview Pat, his his out interview, I suppose, the opposite of mm-hmm. what, what you've done there uh, this morning. Um, but I think that... Um, 
Pat was a very effective representative for farmers. He was very coherent in in his arguments. But the goal, I think the goalposts have moved and it's not JP McManus who sponsored him because up till now, <laughs> the IFA's approach and the ICMSA's approach in terms of the derogation, which is a crucial pivotal issue around environmental, even though 122,000 farmers are not in derogation, only about 8,000 farmers are in derogation. But uh, the, uh, the, the aim has been to oppose any change. and. Uh, that had proven effective until last year and then change came. So we have the changes that were in, uh, announced in July and are being implemented in January. So the strategy of oppose all change no longer works. So you, what are they going to pivot to? Well, you and I were in the room when the EU commissioner, Sinkovinki, has told Ireland, told Irish farmers, look, you've wasted the last two years of your transition, the nitrates derogation. Um was that a wake-up call within farming, do you think, that there's there's a, a new sheriff in town? Yes, but also this year has been a wake-up call. The weather has been appalling um, and farmers are scrambling to empty tanks before the winter. And the, there was there's an extra two weeks of uh, a closed period this winter. There's also a ban now uh, in December on the spreading of dirty water, which means extra water has to be collected and there's real pressure in farmyards this winter and I think that's also a reality that we had some benevolent weather we had uh, very short winters for a couple of years and we had really good results in terms of nitrates but I'd be really fearful for the results this year because of the challenges for farmers um, in effectively managing uh, their nutrients. You um, heard Dennis Drennan saying there that I don't know if it's his sole strategy but that his main approach was going to be to sit back and wait for the better results to come through. Is that really only a kind of a crossing your fingers tactic? We'll hope for the best, yeah. It's a passive approach. So um, I, I think that we we need a broader conversation and not just about the derogation. We can't become obsessed about the derogation to the exclusion of all other issues. There's massive challenges for farming to pivot towards the demands being made of it towards 2030 and beyond. We sat here at the start of the year and we were looking forward to 2023 and uh, we heard a, a vision um, of what Ireland might look like in 2050. And uh, I think that... Uh, you know, the, we need short-term issues. There, there's, I, I believe, there's progress. I'm hearing this morning uh, on the way up that uh, officials from the Department of Agriculture have brokered a deal between the renderers and the nacaries, which will you know, take some huge pressure off farmyards where animals have have died, and they need to be removed to the nacaries uh, under instruction mm-hmm. from the minister. There's some kind of deal in which place is, which that is will good break news, today. But it does distract from that longer-term vision of what Ireland's farming community is going to have to look like in 2050. Well, well. I suppose we, we've got the short term issues, we've got the medium term issues like the next derogation in 2026, the cap in 2030. Mm-hmm. But we need a long term vision. And I think that that's the challenge for Francie Gorman and Dennis Drennan over the next three, four years. Can they, they and others create a blueprint for farming for the, where we're going to be in 2050 and how we get there? Pat O'Toole from the Farmer's Journal. Thank you very much for coming in to us and a happy Christmas to you. Well, let us double back to where we started the programme, County Wexford, and to the efforts made by management and staff at Wexford General Hospital in the wake of that devastating fire which ripped through the building back in March. They have been recognised, those efforts, with two national awards. March the 1st, you will remember, the hospital was thrown into chaos, necessitating the largest evacuation of patients in the history of the HSE. 
An emergency has been declared at Wexford General Hospital and the decision taken to evacuate more than 200 patients, including a number in intensive care, following a fire. The blaze is now under control with no reports of injuries, but extensive damage has been caused to the building. Ambulances have been transporting patients to other hospitals throughout the evening. Our South East correspondent, Connor Kane, has the very latest. So a, a traumatic day for all concerned. Right. Well, the person who made the decision to order that evacuation is none other than Linda O'Leary, the Wexford Hospital Manager. She joins me on the line now. Linda, happy Christmas. How are you? And many happy returns, Philip. Good morning and good morning to all your listeners. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations on the award, Linda. Um, Tell me, though. That decision, that must have been an agonising one to make because you were looking at taking very, very ill people out of intensive care. I was, Philip, but I was supported in my decision by very many people, my my leadership team and the interagencies who had responded to the fire. So on Garda Síochána, the local authority and the National Ambulance Service. And to be honest, it became very, very clear very quickly that I had no alternative but to declare that major emergency and call mm. for an evacuation. I'm thinking I in particular of, sure, I'm thinking in particular yeah. though, Linda, of the, there was a woman in labour, wasn't there, when, when the evacuation right. order was given. I, mean, I would imagine she might have at one point sort of thought, let the building burn, nobody's moving me. <laughs> And indeed, that's what we did. We 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 allowed nature to take its course, and it was the the delivery unit and the theatre area that were the last areas to be evacuated. Mm-hmm. And we were lucky in that we could protect the services that were required in those areas at that time. But all throughout the emergency, I guess patient safety and staff safety was my priority and my key focus. Was there a well-oiled plan for all of this, Linda, or were you thinking on the foot, on the hoof? So we have a major emergency plan um, and it's part of the major emergency framework for a um, nationally for the HSE. Um, I guess all the training in the world can't prepare you for the reality that you face and you do make decisions um, in, in the immediacy, but those decisions are always, as I say, based on patient safety focus, staff safety focus, what can we do that is safe and what, can, more importantly, what can we no longer deliver in but a safe manner? All's well that ends well now, but in the middle of it, in the thick of the moment, did you have mm-hmm. any moment of pause and thinking, oh my God, am I doing the right thing here? Of course I did. Of course I did. I'm only human. <laughs> I'm only human. Um, I did have those moments, but as I say, you go to gut, you know what you're doing. It's easier to call a major emergency in the moment than regret not calling it when you've time to reflect. Mm-hmm. It was the right decision to do. But yes, it was a very big decision to make. Now, obviously, you weren't working on your own on the day. Uh, there was very many other people who got their shoulder to the pump, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What do these awards mean to them? We are absolutely thrilled to receive these awards. I guess for all of us, myself included, it's um, 
recognition that um, we had an extraordinary event in Wexford General Hospital and and uh, an absolutely extraordinary response um, supported by all those agencies that I've spoken about, but particularly the staff of Wexford General Hospital responded, responded appropriately. I have in excess of 1,300 staff working at Wexford General Hospital and every single one of those staff played a pivotal role in our response. And these awards, uh, the HSE Excellence Award and the Irish Healthcare Awards recognise that it has been a very challenging time for us in Wexford. Mm. And it's really... um, it's really, really appreciated by everybody that we are recognised for the difficult period of time we've had. It's been a tough year. Good. Well, it's one, been a really tough year. One of the awards, the one that came from the Irish uh, Healthcare Awards, um, Crisis Management Response of the Year. Frankly, the staff of Wexford General Hospital would be right, would have very good reason to be incredibly annoyed had anybody else <laughs> managed to pick up that <laughs> award in uh, 2023. So look, how long did it take to get things back up and running and back to normal? Um, so we, we reopened our emergency department at the end of July and we had a phased return of our inpatient beds from that date onwards. Um, all our inpatient beds have reopened, but we still have our building contractors on site. We haven't had a full hand back of the site okay. yet. And I would think it will be probably the middle of next year before we God, have, really? um, yes, before we have everything back um, as it was previously. But there are patients and in the hospital now, Linda. Things are up and running. Fully operational. Um, Indeed, fully operational. I, I, I say this with the greatest of respect, but Christmas Day is, uh, you know, it's a weird place to have to be, to be in hospital on Mm -hmm. that day. What do Mm -hmm. you do to normalise it as much as possible? So for patients, um, patients can expect a visit from Santa um, on Christmas Day. Um, And for our staff, we have a system where People work shorter hours. We split a shift so people get an opportunity to go home and spend some time with their with their family. They might prefer to have an early dinner, come in, let their colleague go home for a late dinner. Um, we have choirs. So today we have um, a local choir visiting the hospital uh, this afternoon. And we have, during the week, we would have... Um, local schools come in, the TY choirs from the local schools. So as you say, Phil, it is a really strange day to be in hospital, but patients who are in hospital on Christmas Day, unfortunately, are the patients who need to be in hospital. So we do our very best to discharge as many patients as we possibly can in the run-up to Christmas, but there are patients who that's really not an option for. Where are the awards going to go, so, Linda? They're going to sit in your office? 
Absolutely not. Uh, we were only speaking yesterday. We are going to purchase a trophy cabinet and we will have all our awards on display in the main foyer of the hospital. And if I can, Philip, just to say, we actually received a third award in the last number of weeks. Oh, really? And that, yes, that is a gold award, gold award for Healthy Hearts. It's a catering award. Well, you better go um, and buy a bigger trophy cabinet then, hadn't you? <laughs> Indeed. Linda, Indeed. Linda O'Leary, Wexford Hospital Manager, thank you very much for joining us this morning. That is it from us. Next week is our Christmas special. Stories from around the country. Cold deliveries to keep the fires lit. Conserving the partridge for a pear tree. Growing spices to make the perfect mulled wine. All linked together by some wonderful choirs from this year's Lyric FM's Choirs for Christmas competition. Like fourth and fifth class of St. Thomas National School with Santa Claus is coming to town. Thank you very much for listening folks. Amanda Amandine Paso Devine made the list. Harry Bookless checked it twice. Brenda Donahue is pouting and not telling me why. Have a great weekend. <laughs>